this week we have a coach who I've noticed is one of the best leaders in the state of Minnesota, uh, especially a coach that I've had the pleasure of coaching against. A uh, really good art, Star Tribune article uh, was written in February about what uh, this coach has done in his community. Uh, recently, a new gym in their local community center is named after him. Uh, I feel like there's few guarantees in life, but Austin Basco winning at least 20 games and going to the state tournament seems to be one of those guarantees. And then uh, this is a coach that I've seen from afar that I've really tried to emulate myself after uh, watching on TV, if it's state semi-state final games, just someone that I've really looked up to. Uh, so Austin head coach Chris Sadness. Chris, how are you doing? Thanks for coming on today. Uh, talk about how things are going in Austin. Uh, good, Brett. It's good to see you. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, this is a, a nice feel you've got going. I've listened to the first three, and uh, you're doing great things, man. It's, it's good to hear these other guys. I appreciate that. So, as you've known, as you mentioned, you've listened to the first three. We like to do uh, high school coaches don't have their Wikipedia page. So tell us your coaching Wikipedia page. Uh, where have you been? Where do you play? Uh, where have you coached? All that sort of stuff. Grew up in Houston, Minnesota, and I was fortunate. My dad was a high school basketball coach in the early 1970s. So between the ages of about five to eight, I was able to get on the court with him and, and watch him work with, with the guys. And those guys are my idols, obviously. And so I developed a passion for basketball in the early age. But I went to Houston High, um, graduated from there in the early 80s, and then went to Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Uh, went there to play, you know, get a great education and play basketball. I played a couple years there at Luther, and myself all the writing on the wall and, and coaching was my, was what I really wanted to do. And at that point in time, I, you know, I wanted to chase the, the college coaching. And, and uh, thankfully after my sophomore year of, of college, I met with the, uh, our head coach there at Luther, uh, a guy named Rolf Copperwood at the time. And I met with him and, uh, and just said, Hey, you know, here's the deal. I can either come back and play my junior year or if, if uh, back then the freshman team at Luther or JV team, had uh, student coaches. It was sort of a thing they did. Um, I, I said, and I knew one of the guys was leaving that was a student coach for the freshman JV team. So I said, you know, I really want to go into coaching. So if uh, if there's that possibility to do that, I'll do that. And, you know, Rolf just said, you know, if coaching is what you want to do someday, I would recommend that you get into that. would love to have you on board and, and have you coach. So I was very lucky at a young age to get into coaching. So my junior year at Luther, I, I helped out with the JV program. My senior year, I was able to be the, the head coach of the JV program there at Luther. Um, because I had switched majors multiple times while at Luther, I was able to stay a fifth year uh, and, and then help out with the varsity a little bit. Uh, when I finished at Luther, I, I went overseas and, and I got a, a job coaching a club team in Iceland. So I coached a, a year of professional ball in Iceland at the club level there and then uh, when I came back to the States, I really was, I didn't have anything going on. I could have gone back to Iceland. I just, at that point in my life, I, uh, my, my girlfriend and I were very serious, who ended up to be my wife. But uh, at the time we were very serious. I didn't want to go back to Iceland for that reason, primarily. Um, and I just had no, nowhere to go, nothing going on. And, and I met Dave Thorson through working summer camp. Um, and Thor's that let me know that Tim Yard Hammond was looking for an assistant. So when I got back from Iceland, I, I, I got, I met Tim and um, was able to get on his staff at Hamlin and was with Tim for four years at Hamlin. Um, and then I, I probably could have stayed there forever. I, Tim was great and uh, gr great respect for Tim. But uh, when, when he resigned at Hamlin, again, I'm sort of 
trying to figure out what to do from there. And I, I got the head basketball job in Caledonia, Minnesota. So I went to Caledonia and coached for four years in Caledonia in the mid nineties. And we had uh, great success in Caledonia and, and that led to an opportunity here in Austin. And I've been in Austin now for 23 years. You've had a lot of success at Austin. Unfortunately, this past season, uh, you guys had your rubber match for the section final with Albert Lee. It got canceled the day of. How did your staff and your players deal with not even being able to have even that section closure? And what were some life lessons that you taught your guy or talked to your guys about uh, from that situation? Um, honestly, Brett, it was an awful day. And, and the way everything evolved that day was, was really tragic for our kids and, and for our, our staff and, and everybody involved. Um, I, I found out after the kids found out. And we had, I mean, obviously people were paying attention to the news and we all had a pretty good idea that this game was not going to get played, I think. Um, but, but until then, you have to prepare your team for the, for the fact that you got a game. And um, I'm teaching class, and I've got players texting me in the middle of the class saying, hey, what's going on? I heard, we don't, I heard we're done. And uh, I hadn't heard anything yet, so then I found out that, yes, indeed, the game was canceled. And I was a little disappointed. I, I was hoping that somehow we could have been notified uh, in advance of it becoming public so that we would have had time to pull our kids in together and, and just talk to them about what happened. So then the kids that could have gone home or then gotten on with their school day, but our kids really had a hard time handling it. We had, we had a number of kids who just walked out of school. They were so broken up. Uh, and one kid you know, broke down in tears in the middle of class. It just it wasn't a great way for our kids to learn about what had happened. And so we were dealing with that. Uh, at the end of the school day, we, we were able to get the majority of our guys together for a meeting and just start to talk about you know what had happened um, the end of the season our season uh, where we were going to go from here but it was not <laughs> I mean it was not a good situation and the end of every year is hard uh, regardless of where you end up that last game is always difficult mm -hmm. um, so it was a tough situation a lot of emotion um, I, I just feel awful for our seniors and, and for what yeah. they had to go through and for what they're still going through. Yeah. And not, not just in Austin, but I feel bad for every kid yeah. who's put in that situation and in that situation. I feel bad for the Albert Lee kids. Heck, they had a senior-dominated team this year. Yeah. I feel terrible that those kids didn't have an opportunity like our kids to play that game. Yeah, I know at least it, people ask us, obviously we had won our section final the day before. And a lot of people asked me, and I kept coming back to situations like you guys and Albert Lee and Eden Prairie and Nomora uh, as a team kind of in our area who was playing in their first chance to go to state tournament the first time in 60 or 70 years. And I kept saying, at least we had a little bit of closure. We got to have our section final. You get to be section champs. You got a little trophy ceremony. But I really felt bad for the teams like Austin and Eden Prairie and Albert Lee, all those teams who didn't get to have their section. So, uh, again, um, really tough situation for you guys. And uh, again, sorry, you guys had to deal with it. Obviously an unfortunate uh, winter, obviously an unfortunate spring for a lot of teams. But I want to talk a little bit more about the uh, uh, Star Tribune article. You're extremely humble in my few conversations with you. I know uh, you like to obviously compliment your players and deserve really so, but you, you deserve some praise as well. Uh, the article talked a lot about how basketball helped really bridge and grow the community of Austin and um, how basketball is just a huge um, fan people love Austin, Austin Packer basketball is a big deal. And so I want to know how you have led a role as a, as a leader in the assimilation of the 
uh, different groups of people that are currently living in Austin and how your leadership and some of the things that you did to help, uh, help assimilate the cultures together? Well, I don't know how to correctly answer this, and this was always my, my take with Chip. Is, um, for me, it's not even really about assimilation. It's just about the fact that we've got people of different backgrounds. In the end, they're all boys. I'm a basketball coach. I'm not political. I'm not out there to change the world per se. I want our kids to to be able to chase a passion and, and share a passion and you know develop and learn those life lessons through basketball that they can. And the great thing about being in sports is that you can bring a group of people together who have one common goal, uh, one common passion, and you can work together to achieve the things you want to achieve uh, as a group. Um, so I, I think that it, it really helped, you know, here in that we, we've got kids that love basketball and regardless of background and uh, all that, we're able to focus on what, what the common goals are. Now, our community has done more than I could ever do, but, but our community has been extremely supportive and, uh, of diversity in Austin. Um, and we, we have a, a South Sudanese population. We have a, a Karn Kareni population. Um, uh, we have a, a Hispanic population. We, you know, we have a lot of different languages and colors and whatever you want to call it here um, in Austin. And I just think that, uh, you know, you've, you've got, we've got a Fortune 500 company here in, in Hormel. And so a lot of these people are working together uh, at Hormel. and. You know, we're going to, uh, I think our churches in town have been really good about uh, taking in different cultures and, and groups. And, and again, I, I, I don't want to use the word assimilate. I think we've been really good about allowing each of these cultures to still maintain their own culture um, within our community. So, again, I wouldn't say we're not trying to make them like us. We're allowing them to be who they are um, in Austin. Uh, to some degree, obviously you've got like, you've got different rules and society laws and all that, um, but but I think that's what we've been successful with is just allowing them to be who they are, yet still chase the American dream. You talk about life lessons and how basketball can really bring people together. Talk about some of the common values that your program has, or your common uh, traits of your your program's identity. Well, <laughs> this I'm I'm competitive by nature. So for us, it's, it's, we are a competitive based program. So from grades nine through 12 is, is really right. I sort of take the forefront and, um, and thankfully we've got great support people, assistance, administration, whatnot, but, but we're trying to win ball games here and we're really trying to develop that winning culture. Um, and I, it's like I tell people, there's a reason they have scoreboards on the walls. I mean, so we're trying to win and obviously we're trying to win doing it but what I would call the right way. Um, so we want our kids to be hard workers. Uh, we, we want them to be self-disciplined. We want them to do well academically. We want them just to know what the right thing is and to do right. So when it comes to, that's what we're trying to sell is do the right thing in all walks of life. Um, you know, pursue your goals and your dreams. We'll do the best to help you, you know, as long as we feel it's within reason, yeah. uh, but we're going to be bluntly honest about some things at times. But 
but make no mistake about it, Brett, we are a competitive-based program, and we're trying to do what we can do to be to be competitive. But again, at the same time, there are obviously some limitations and boundaries to that. You know, being a team for us, we hadn't been the state chairman for 87 years. We always really focused on our teams and our conference and our section. And being able to play you guys front and center uh, in the third place game, two seater last season, 18-19 uh, season. And then see so you guys, I think, had four seniors and obviously had the one junior who was good who was back this year. And then from afar, you know, a couple hundred miles away, see that you guys are 20-some wins again, dominating through the big nine, number one seed in your section. How are you guys so good every year? We have good players. Uh, I mean, that's the bottom line is, is we have good players. We have, you know, we're very fortunate in that, you know, our, our, our youth basketball association has, has really done a nice job. We've had good leadership there. It's something that it's gotten to the point where I really don't need to be that involved with anymore. Now I can give some guidance and advice on some things, but really, you know, I'm letting those people run with it. And I'm sure everybody's been in that situation as a head coach. It's really hard to teach the parents and the volunteers who are coaching a lot of those youth teams, what you're doing systematically, offensively and defensively and expect them to run that. If that's not their background and not their terminology and language, they have a tough time with that. So you really got to let them be themselves a little bit. And again, with our youth basketball, we're just stressing the fundamentals, basically learn how to shoot, pass, dribble, play hard, um, those types of things. But, but we've had great leadership there. And then our local YMCA has been outstanding and, and they used to have dollar memberships for high school kids. So it allowed all our kids really a place to go hang out. Now that has since changed with our new building where now that it's still very cheap for our kids to go there and, and, and play. And they have sort of a sliding pay scale for our kids. But, but our local I has, has really benefited our basketball program because it's really become a hangout for our kids. And then we're opening the gym up as much as we possibly can at the high school as well. So, you know, we, we run a summer program. We have open gyms in the off season. Now we're not in there every night. Um, you know, we have great custodial staff at, at our high school um, who understands that, you know, that it's about the kids. Um, you know, so, I, I mean, just a lot of things are in place there for opportunities for our kids to be in the gym and to be playing basketball. And that's allowed them to get better. Your teams are really good. Like uh, I've, I've said this a lot and I said that on other podcasts, how impressed I've been just when you think of a well-coached team, I just, I've never seen a team that's came off just from my bench watching the other five guys in the court from the other team play that came off and looked so well-coached. So that's just a testament to what you've done there. And I want to get into a little bit of the X's and O's here. Uh, mainly I'm, I'm really trying to steal some notes in case we play you guys again, so I can figure out how to beat your press. Uh, so I got a handful of things I want to talk about with your press. Feel free to answer however you want. You know, if you want to save your notes, you want to keep something secret, by all means, that's, that's, that's your right to do so. Uh, but I'm going to see what I can steal from you. So first off, this was a, a John Carrier tweet, I think, earlier in the day. So how would you decide on playing this style uh, of basketball on the defensive end with your zone pressure? Uh, it started when I was coaching my son's seventh grade basketball team. And we were really bad. And to the point where we were getting just – we didn't have big kids. I mean, we were getting physically punished on a week-to-week -week basis playing in these, you know, traveling tournaments. And, and that just I – mean, we were losing by 30 to 40 points, 40 to 50 points. I mean, our kids were getting killed. They were not developing a passion for basketball because in the end they saw the scoreboard, and when you're getting beat that bad, why do you want to keep playing? We right. had to figure out some way to be – just to be in games. Um, so. 
what does that mean? It means, well, yes, I, I know people hate zoning at the youth level. I just thought for the mental <laughs> welfare of our kids and their passion for basketball, we had to do something to be competitive. So we went zone in seventh grade with this one, two, two, when I was coaching my kids team, and really and it evolved from there. We got more competitive with it, got better as eighth graders. Um, so we went from bad to being competitive. And when those kids were seniors, we were pretty good. We went over 500 and had a good year, but, but I just, that's where it started. And I saw what it was doing and then I took it to our varsity level. And really we've been playing it for, it's over 10 years now. So about 11, 12 years. And I'd always been a pretty much a man to man guy for the most part before that. We'd done some one to two in the past, but for the most part was a man to man guy. And, but I just sort of fell in love with it. I fell in love with the fact that it made us more competitive. As a man-to-man guy with where we were at, and Dave Thorson used to talk about this a lot. We're trying to be as competitive as we can be, and we're trying to win a state championship and get as far as we can go. Well, we can't, we couldn't beat the Patrick Henrys of the early 2000s, uh, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, and the Minneapolis Norse, and, and, in, in the better teams in our league, we couldn't beat those teams playing man because I was yelling help all the time. Help, help, <laughs> help, help. And I think I said help, you know, all, I mean, constantly. So, you know, when you can't guard a guy one-on-one or even come close to it on any type of consistent basis, it was tough. So bottom line is we went to this, took it up to the varsity level. We've been doing it for 11, 12 years, and it has just sort of evolved and evolved and evolved. And We've added a few different wrinkles each and every year, and we can do some different things with it based on, well, are we more athletic this year? Uh, the year we played you last year, when we played you in that third place game, uh, we were a little bit smaller, but we were fast and quick. This year we had a little bit more size. We weren't as fast and quick on the perimeter, so we did some things. We weren't quite as extended with it, but we did some things differently uh, with it. But I tell you what, our, our kids have bought in. They believe in it. They've seen the success we've had in it. They like pressing. They like trapping. They like getting out on fast breaks. Um, so we've had just a complete buy-in from our from our kids. And I think when when you see the success we've had, other kids coming up in our program see the success we have. I think they like playing it. They learn to like playing it. Do you let the, do the youth teams run it, or do you have them run man to man at the youth level? I don't worry about it till ninth grade. Okay. I, I know I can tell you this year that our eighth grade kids were playing some one two two. But I, I don't worry about it till ninth grade. You know, I, as far as I'm concerned, the youth basketball coaches, they can do what they want defensively. If they want my help, I'll help them. If they want to do their own thing, I'm fine with it. I, I want kids basically to have some fun, learn some skills when they're young. But, um, but no, ninth grade is when I really start, we start hammering it. What rules do you put on trapping and being aggressive? Well, it, it depends on where we're at. I mean, we, we do some different things with it. When we're in the half court, I can tell you that we are ball pressure centric. So just like any man-to-man defense, ball pressure is the number one key when we're in the half court. And we prefer the ball to be on a sideline. We want to we want to flood the ball side of the floor and force teams to throw skip passes. Um, we want to try that three-quarter court front or dead front the post, and we want to jump passing lanes and. Like we'll trap anywhere on that sideline, dependent on where bodies are at and where things are at. But, but I want us. I guess what I tell our guys is, 
I want us to play defense like we're a bunch of first or second graders playing soccer for the very first time. Because if you've ever watched first and second graders play soccer, all they do is chase the ball. They all chase the ball. And that's what I want our defensive mentality to be is one where we just chase the ball, just chase the ball, flood the ball side, chase the ball, attack the ball, force teams to throw it, skip. We're going to rely on our athleticism, our quickness to chase skips, beat the other team back across the floor. So that's really fundamentally what we're trying to do. So ball pressure is key. We're attacking the ball side. We're trying to make you throw over the top. That's yeah. funny you use the first and second grade soccer analogy. We use that as a negative in our program, and especially in, like, in scramble situations when two guys will run to the ball and no one talks. So we're like, you guys look like you're playing youth soccer. One of you talk, one on the ball, right? And you guys use it as a positive. I think that's great. Uh, what are some of your non-negotiables defensively? Um, no man's land is a real bother for me defensively. Um, so, for example, it, a lot of teams are going to like a 2-1-2 type set against our 1-2-2 with a two-guard front, uh, two forwards down, and, and maybe a post in the middle. So our rule is anytime the ball goes from, from guard to, to the baseline, we're either going to plug or trap it. And it really bothers me when our wing doesn't bust his butt to either go trap it or to plug it immediately and he just sort of waddles down there or gets caught between the plug and between the trap and is unsure what to do it and i want us just to be as aggressive as possible so i get really frustrated when we're not moving fast when we're not aggressive um we tell our weak side wings when the ball goes from again guard to forward and again, it's a trap or plug situation. We tell our weak side wing to always assume that we are going to trap. Just assume we are going to trap because you can always back off before plugging it. So when our weak side wing doesn't aggressively start moving towards the ball side like we're going to trap, that bothers me. So more than anything, it's just a lack of defensive aggression is when I get mad. Um, and, and, and that's when things might be non-negotiable. When we struggle defensively, it's usually because we're not pressuring the ball hard enough. How do you drill that in practice? So, so hard work, getting after it, diving on the floor, jumping those passing lights, just non-aggressiveness would probably be number one defensively. Offensively, turnovers are number one for me. I, I absolutely hate turnovers. I think there's no other statistic in sports across the board that makes a difference in games than turnovers. Um, our, our statistical analysis of games with what we do is such that we are trying to create uh, a turnover margin of plus six every game for us. So if, if we can keep our turnovers down around 11, 12, then we're trying to get the other team to commit 17 to 18. We know because we are, are, are so aggressive defensively trying to steal the ball uh, and create turnovers uh, that we're not going to be a great rebounding team because we're flooding that ball side. So we get off a number on the weak side a lot with shots. And quite frankly, sometimes the best offense for the opposing team is just to jack up a wild shot and free guys. <laughs> so, 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 so rebounding is an issue. So what we try to do is we try to stay within a three rebound margin. And we have found through statistical analysis of our games that if we can come out plus three, meaning that if we can 
be plus six on the turnovers and minus three on the rebounds so that we're plus three or better total, we usually come out ahead and win the game. Now, when we played D. LaSalle in the state championship and they got Reed Travis on the weak side, we had a minus 24 on the rebound margin, <laughs> even though we might be plus two or three on the turnover. You know, but but that's that's the way we go uh, with that. But turnovers are huge for me. So, again, lack of aggressiveness defensively, the turnover situation, especially offensively, we don't want to commit turnovers. Uh, and then shot selection is always big. And, and uh, we probably allow – kids to play a little bit too free at times but I want to make sure we're taking good shots one thing I noticed when we played you guys uh that we really were a pressing team it's kind of it's kind of the same lens that we want to be playing for a section final every year we know talent's going to come and go but if we can get ourselves in the spot where we're playing for a section final anything can happen in 36 minutes with high school kids and so last year we played you guys we were more 212 um 2-2-1 2-1-2 press this year we were all full court man run and jump pretty much for the last 22, 23 games of the season. And we really talked a lot with our guys about how seamlessly you guys, and we played you in that third place game, how seamlessly you guys got into your press. And it was live ball, dead ball, turnover, make or miss. You guys were into your three-quarter court pressure. And so how do you get your kids to seamlessly get into the trap? Is that just from what you do in practice? Or talk about how they get into it so fast. Yeah, I, you got I mean, we're playing this from ninth grade on up. And it, and quite frankly, it's an easy defense to play for our, for our kids. It's pretty easy. They know where to be and where to go. Um, and, and like most teams, I think I don't think our defensive transition is any different from a man-to-man team. You know, we're, we're telling our kids that, hey, if, if, if you're above the free-throw line behind the three-point line when a shot goes up, you're automatically getting back. Once you see that things are cleared and back, start pressing up, you know. So we do talk about our kids have just this is just what they do and what they what they know. So, you know, we have our designated get back guys, but at the same time, once they see things are clear, we're running them up and trying to get into it. And our kids just get pretty good at knowing when to get back, when not to. How do you adjust your defense to your opponents? Well, I'll use Albert Lee as an example this year. Uh, in, in both games, in the two games we played them this year. We lost to them at home early in the year by one. It was 72 to 71 or something like that. And they really did a nice job of spreading us out and passing the ball. And Albert Lee this past year had a really good big man, 6'7", kid is Chai Gwynn, who was a really good ball player. And he, he was just dominant. And we had a hard time keeping the ball out of his kids' hands. They did a really nice job of passing the ball and not dribbling and throwing over the top of us and getting him – uh, the ball in positions where he could do some damage or he just dominated the glass rebounding. So he really controlled that game and then they just made shots. Um, so then we obviously need to make some adjustments second time we played him. So then we, we, we basically went man to man until we got our trap. And then once we got our trap, we scrambled to our zone. So, so we did some goofy stuff with that. Um, but the second time we played him, we beat him 41 to 40. I mean, it was just a different game because defensively we just went after him more. It was a turnover fest on both sides. Yeah. You know, and the score was down, but I credit a lot of it just the fact that we changed our mentality defensively just to, to get after him more and force him to dribble. How much do you practice or how do you get your – maybe a better question is how do you emulate a game situation with your pressure? I know you talked about running it through 9th through 12th grade, 9th through 12th grade, but how do you emulate a game situation uh, with your guys? Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's any 
you know, the, the nice thing about that zone is most teams are going to attack you the same way on a yearly basis if the same coach sticks around. Yep. So we can go to, okay, we're playing so-and-so, and they want to overload the ball side. So we know that they're going to run short corner, mid post, and overload the ball side. So, you know, we'll talk about coverage responsibilities, rotations, you know, with that. Um, and just break that down and walk through it. Uh, we actually probably spend more time with personnel than we do with what the other teams do. And, you know, I, Matt Cato East this past year had a really good basketball team, and they run a press break that was a little bit different than other, other people. So, you know, we had to do some things different against them rotation-wise within our press. So we would just broke that down and, and whatnot. But uh, honestly, Brett, we just see a lot of two-on-two or guys standing and teams just trying to pass it around and get a shot up and, and then try to kill us on the glass. Um, so we don't get a lot of real varying stuff. Um, when we do, we'll, we'll break it down a little bit uh, defensively. But, but, yeah, I don't know if that answers much of your question. No, totally. I get it. Makes sense. Let's go offense. We spend a lot of time here, probably 20 minutes or so on the defensive side of the floor. Uh, what is your guys' base offense? We're a motion-oriented team, and we like certain actions to take place. So we're heavy ball screen. We like to roll replace action off the ball screen. We like to get high-low opportunities out of the ball screen situations if we can't wait to play with the ball. But we're heavy ball screen, and we do a lot of high ball screen stuff. Um, and we try to run some different stuff through that. But uh, heavy ball screen, roll replace action. We do like to down screen especially coming off of dead balls or in the five-on-five full-court situations. We like to down screen to start offense. So we will set some down screens. Um, and then uh, <clears throat> we do a lot of dribble. We call it dribble apps. I know a lot of people call them dribble handoffs. We call them dribble apps. We do a lot of dribble ad action. Um, reason we call it dribble ads because we want the ball to be dribbled at the defensive player guarding that guy in the wing rather than just to go towards the guy. We call it dribble act because we want to go at the defender and force him to say, okay, am I, you know, am I playing high where I give up the backdoor cut or am I opening up and allowing him to flip behind the ball and run the dribble handoff? So, I mean, we do a lot of dribble handoff action or we call it dribble act uh, action. So we do the dribble act, um, so but ball screens, dribble acts, roll replace, uh, down screens. Um, you know, that's, that's pretty much what we do. And we're just talking about space in the floor, playing to each other's strengths, and uh, making sure we get good shots and don't turn the dang ball over. You listen to my podcast with Coach uh, Bryce Tezdahl from Minnetonka. We talked a little bit about set plays and how you can – we call it, you know, when we're scouting teams, they, teams will want to run a set fiesta. That's kind of our joking term when teams want to run set after set after set after set, which I think as a coach it's easier to scout than the teams like you mentioned who are just playing basketball off of motion. But what is your what, – what are you guys at for sets? Do you have 3, 10, 15? And when do you look to run a specific set? We're, we're, it, it depends on our team. We've had years where we've had, you know, upwards of 30 to 35 sets. Now, they're all quick hitters. They're nothing that you have to really think hard about. Um, it, I, I like our sets to all emanate from, from basically the same set or formation. But, but we're not good with sets, to be honest with you. But um, – like out of our high ball screen series, we'll go high ball where we're just going to roll replace up top and keep our shooters in the corners. We'll, we'll go with a, a space look where we're just going to clear out the basketball with the high ball screen and just space out everybody wide. Um, 
we like to do our dribble at into ball screen. So we might dribble at a wing and, and, and chase the dribbler so that he's coming into a ball screen type action. Um, so a lot of our sets may, we like to, uh, we do a single pin action where we're, where our screener after, after he ball screens is going to become a screener. So he's going to go pin down for somebody or screen away. Um, we like to double high ball screen. So we might call double away where we're going to set a double high ball screen. And then those two guys are going to go set a double screen away um, for, for our weak side shooter. Um, we like a lot of switch screens up top, um, especially teams that are showing big. Um, we, we like to switch screen it. Um, so we'll run some switches. We'll do some horn stuff, but I'm not great on, on horn. Sometimes I think we just bring more bodies to the party. Uh, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, so first half, we'll just, we'll just go, you know, high ball space, uh, double high, things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and what people don't understand is we, you talk about the X's and O's stuff, and I heard you talk to these other guys. It's not like we're in the college game where a guy can, where the point guard can basically dribble the ball 25 times without worrying about a five count. And then mm -hmm. you can run a blur screen uh, yep. and into another ball screen. Well, you can't do that to the high school level because you're going to get a five count. Right. Uh, so, you know, people talk about a shot clock. I don't mind a shot clock, but we better not go. I like that five count from a defensive perspective, but but I just, man, I, I think that kills basketball. I hate watching the pro game when I got to watch James Harden dribble the ball 24 times before he comes off the ball screen. You know, I, I just wish some of that stuff. I almost wish they still had a five count in the NBA and at the college yeah. level. Because I just think it just creates so much more dribbling. You've hit on a good point that I've really never heard, I've never read or heard anyone mention that, is that some of these sets that you, you go on Twitter or fast draw where you can drown in the amount of stuff that's out there, you're not factoring in that there are different rules at play there. So that's, that's a good point. Uh, you know, yeah, go ahead. College level. It's college level right now with all the heavy ball screen stuff that they're doing. If you look at a lot of their plays, go, I'm looking at it going, I love that set. We can't run it. It'll be a exactly. five count for a card. Yeah. You know? I've never, I've never looked at it that way. That's, that, that's really interesting. That's good. To, good to hear. Uh, so mostly you guys are running actions within your offense. You're not re yeah. redesigning a, you know, a four load, uh, floppy into you know whatever so no. you guys run everything out of your offense no. we'll, we'll start with the down screen maybe and run a strong side ball screen with their low guy and clear out the back side i mean it's nothing and teams watch us and probably just think like, just throw the ball around till somebody feels like shooting you know i mean they say that about us too so that's <laughs> that's good <laughs> good to know i'm in good company yeah all right so your practices uh kind of last uh, basketball related thing here uh, your practices, what do they look like, uh, especially that first week of practice? What are you looking to accomplish? We go long and hard, and we're very structured early on. So very structured. We try to just hammer out the, the basics and, and get all our um, all our stuff in. And, you know, I, when, when, I'm, a, I'm a Green Bay Packer football fan. I'm sorry, but when Mike McCarthy was coaching the Packers, he always talked about early on in training camp being implementation phases. And that's just sort of the way I thought about our first practice. They're just, we're just implementing things and, um, and uh, you know, working hard, getting our base stuff in. But we go along and hard and everything's structured. We have so much time for defense, so much time for offense, so much time for fundies. Um, and go from there. Um, I'm not a big two-a-day guy because I'm not a morning person. So for me, I'm not going to get up and run a 6 o'clock in the morning practice because I'm not good at 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, and, uh, you know, I learned a valuable lesson a long time ago where, you know, 
kids are going to respond to how you feel. If you're energetic, they'll be energetic. If you're into it, they're going to be into it. So I always just try to make sure first and foremost that I am ready for practice. So I'm better off going to two and a half, three hour practice early in the year in one shot than I am doing a two a day type thing. That's just me. Um, and our, our kids seem to handle it pretty well, but but like most programs, early in the season, we go long and hard. And as the year goes on, we cut back and cut back. And like we're probably going 50 minutes to an hour by the end of the year. So within that early, let's, let's say a middle of the season, two-hour practice, how much five-on-five five are you guys doing versus your skill stuff versus uh, some scouting report? Yeah, we don't do a lot of scouting report stuff. Again, our zone allows us not to have to do that. So we can get away with not doing a ton of scouting report stuff. I mean, um, I, a lot of it is five on five. We spend a lot of time five on five. We'll have a five on five half court phase. We'll have a five on five um, full court phase. And, um, you know, we may focus again on the defensive stuff uh, early on doing some, we start every practice with defensive breakdown stuff, moving into defensive five on five, full court defensive five on five, where that's our main emphasis. And then we'll go to offensive stuff. And we might start with the, with the breakdown uh, drill here or there, uh, depending on what our focus is for that day, and then we'll move it to five on five from there. But over the years, I've really gone away from a lot of the breakdown stuff into more five on five. Uh, I think when I was younger and first starting out, man, I was all into the breakdown stuff. But as the years have gone by, I just found five on five stuff. The kids are more into it. We just get more production done. They're learning how to play a little bit better. Um, uh, some of those early years where it was just constant two on two, strong side, weak side. I mean, I just, man, I felt like I was pulling teeth some days, getting them to do some of that breakdown stuff. Yeah. Um, and less guys just, standing around, right? You have more guys involved in the drill and you can make points of emphasis and you can focus on your weak side defense, weak side rotation within a five on five setting. Right, exactly. All right. Um, advice for a first year head coach. Uh, you've done this for a long time. You have hundreds of wins, a lot of state tournament appearances. Uh, awards, section championships. What's some advice you'd have for a first year or a new head coach? Well, first of all, it's a relationship business. Uh, you better develop relationships not only with your kids, but your kids' parents and with your administration and make sure that you're accessible. And, you know, I've, I've always felt that some compassionate honesty goes a long ways. I think, I think you're better off being honest with people and I know it's sort of cliche, but I try to I try to teach all our kids like they were my own kid. Now, granted, every kid's different. Some kids respond more to a little bit of chewing on. Some kids don't respond to that at all. And you sort of, you know, got to know who those types of kids are. But but you got to develop relationships uh, amongst your players, your parents, your administration, because in the end, they're going to be the ones who determine your fate uh, yep. long term. And you want them to know that hey. You know, this is about more than basketball. I'm about your kid, and, and I want to help him out and uh, and have him have a good experience with basketball, regardless of what his role may be. So relationships are number one. Number two, what are you going to tolerate? You know, I, I, I've watched enough practices to know that uh, I probably stop practice a little bit too much when I see mistakes or things go wrong. But I think you need to do that because I think if you allow in practice, mistakes to keep happening and fester and bad habits to keep being bad habits uh, i think you're creating an environment and 
for bad basketball and for things happening that you don't necessarily want to happen. So I think you have to nip in the bud the things you don't like. Um, and we try to do that. And, uh, and, and again, it's a simple game in, in the end. So again, relationships, what are you going to tolerate? And then in the end, it's a simple game. Protect the ball, take good shots, work your tail off on defense, and chase the ball, rebound it, steal it, whatever you got to do defensively to get the other team to, to not score. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. Um, and, and then it'd be old school, you know, my, when my dad was an old high school coach, we always just said, hey, um, by game night, most of your work should be done. It's about playing the game. Your work should have been done in practice. Your practices should be harder than your games and your guys should be ready for your games, and you shouldn't have to just all of a sudden be, become a different coach on game night. What was it like getting the gym named after you, the community center gym named after you? Um, it's bizarre. So, I mean, <laughs> it's sort of comical, to be honest with you. I, I, you know, the Ettinger family, Jeff and Leanne Ettinger, um, uh, they have a son um, who played uh, for us here, Jay, who happens to also be my son's best friend and in his class. And uh, Jeff was a former CEO at Hormel and he and, and his family contributed uh, a lot of money to that, to the to our to our new community center um, slash YMCA building. And it gave him some naming rights and um, the family was was very generous and, and uh, asked basically wanted to name it after me. Uh, for a year and a half, I tried to talk him out of it with, with very little success. Um, but it's an honor. That's, I say comical, but it is it's quite an honor. And uh, you know, you're, I'm humbled by it. Um, and at the same time, it, it's, it's not my name. I, I hope people understand it's, it's It's the name of all the players we've had go through our system. It's, it's the name of all the parents who have been so supportive of what we do. It's been our fast break booster club that, that's uh, done their part. It's, it's our local businesses and communities that have supported us financially and, and in other ways. Um, and it's our school administration and teachers who work with our kids on a daily basis and who are so supportive. Um, it, it's my wife who's allowed me to do this for years and years. That <laughs> their assistant coaches, uh, you know, right now I got two assistants who are former players here in Austin. So I mean, it's it it, it it's a community thing and it, it takes a village, man. One of the questions from the audience I got on Twitter today, you mentioned your dad, but who are some of your other biggest coaching influences? Uh, well, my dad, number one, and then number two, my, my high school basketball coaches were a guy named Steve Zimiaski. He was a big six, seven guy who played at, uh, at Wisconsin Stout. Um, and then his assistant my senior year was Tom Vicks, the, the, the old Russell Peterson coach for years and years, a Hall of Famer, Tom Vicks. He was the assistant back then. Uh, just starting out in coaching. So I was very lucky to play for, for Coach Z and uh, for Tom Vicks. And, um, so they were very influential. Uh, then when I went to Luther College, the, the guy who was actually most influential to me at Luther um, was not uh, the he a head coach. He was an assistant for a while, but he was also the head cross country and track coach with Kent Penanger. Uh, is the name down at Luther that's legendary uh, at Luther. But Kent had just a zest for life a great motivator, just, just an outstanding human being and, and, and passionate person. Um, but, but Kent was a great influence. Um, and then uh, Tim Muir obviously was huge from a basketball standpoint, uh, being at Hamlin and being able to work with him and Bob Gwynn and 
Tom Gillis, and um, those are some great years at Hamlin. And I, like I said, if Tim never would have retired, he probably would have had to fire me. Um, <laughs> I would have stuck around. But but I just I thought the world of Tim uh, really, uh, from a technical perspective, he really broke the game down. I mean, I, we're teaching defensive. You know, we were trying to teach Dick Bennett on the line, up the line. He's talking about hand placement and fingers and and really just breaking it down just you know strides and steps and so I, I really learned a lot about you know trying to be a perfectionist and trying to strive to be the best you can be and work ethic and getting after it every night and Tim was just really really good uh, a great coach a great practice coach and I learned a lot from from Tim so uh, and I would say that that's probably it right there in terms of, you know, biggest uh, people that have motivated me the most and helped me the most. All right. Hardest hitting question, question last year, coach Nike's on game day. I love it. How long have you been rocking the Nike's on game day? Not very long, probably about three, three, four years now, but okay. Yeah. I like my air forces, man. I like my air forces. Yeah. They, they look sharp. When you've won as many games as you have, you can you can wear whatever you want on game days. Yeah, when I first started out, I was wearing ties. I gave that up a long time with those days. All right, I'm so glad you came on the podcast. I know coaching against you and then just talking to you today, I know I became a way better coach. Uh, you've had an influence on me. Um, stay safe, and uh, hopefully our paths cross again down in Minneapolis again uh, next winter. Well, you do a great job, Brett, and thanks a lot. I appreciate this time. I will say one more thing. You know, when we were talking about life lessons from the end of this season, I will say this. You know, human life is more important than any basketball game. So we were trying to convey that to our kids, why this, you know, game needed to be canceled and, and why things need – definitely still hard for them to understand. But I think we can all see now the ramifications of, of people gathering together and whatnot. So, so there were some, some – Definitely life lessons to, to learn at the time, albeit very hard ones. That was good, Coach. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Brett.